In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Welcome to the first ever International Browns Podcast. Good morning, Cleveland. Well, it's not a great morning. But the good news is the 49ers are coming to town in a few days' time. Well, after the bye week. But anyway, I'm here with Jack Duffin and Ian Wright, right, right. Jack, what happened on that game? I, I don't know. I don't know if the Ravens are great and the Browns are bad. Well, just one other bit you missed off there. Undefeated in week five, baby. Go Browns. Can't lose this week. <laughs> um, it was an absolute shower. Uh, I'm only really, when I look at the game, I'm purely looking at everything before it went 14-3. Once it goes 14-3, it's game over. And I'm, I'm not concerned about what happened after there. Um, communication seems to be incredibly lacking um, inter- inside the organisation. Um, and that's something that they need to take away and get fixed. From all the talks of the Watson interviews, I'm definitely playing. Stefanski, yeah, he's going to play. They can sell us that lie on the outside, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they didn't even seem to know that on the inside, and that's what concerns me the most. Ian, what's your views? I want to agree with Jack, but it's in my good nature to not. So here's my question for Jack. If Watson is saying, and listen, I'm just taking what Jason Lloyd and other people have said, right? If Watson's out there telling everybody he's playing, right? And the doctors have said, listen, it's a bruise. We don't really, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm an orthopedic, right? If it's a bruise and it's near a nerve cord and it's like, hey, I, I just can't put any zip on this ball. But Watson's saying, don't worry, guys. I've played with a collapsed lung. I've played with cracked ribs. You know, I've played through pain. I'm good to go. Because even Stefanski in the postgame said this isn't a pain management thing for him, which is basically saying he didn't not play because it hurt too bad. He's basically saying that he didn't play because he physically could not throw the ball like he needed to be able to throw the ball. That's what he's saying. So if Watson's saying he's going to play, the trainers are saying he's good to play. The doctors are basically saying, yep, he can't make it any worse. You know, what? I don't think that they didn't design two game plans. I think that's erroneous. I think they had a a laundry list of plays. And once Watson got ruled out, they basically said, we're only going to use this small subset. And I would almost bet if you went back and looked schematically, they probably ran about 15 different plays against the Ravens because you had DTR. So what are you to do? If the player's saying he's going to play, the doctors are saying he can play and all these other things are play. What can you possibly do different? I think... Regardless of whether he played or not, the game plan needed to be different because he was not never going into that game 100%. So in theory, you want to reduce the amount of pass plays and stuff like that. And I don't think that was ever really there. There was lots of passing early on um, and that kind of has that knock-on impact. So I think they would have been much better going, let's have a bit more run focus. So the second drive is the one that frustrates me the most. They, they were running the ball perfectly fine overall. 
through until 14-3. Forget about what happens after. It's a disaster. But before that, run the ball second drive. You get seven yards and then it's incomplete pass, incomplete pass that leads to a an interception. This, I felt that drive should have seen at least one, if not two, run plays. If you've got Watson there, I love the aggressiveness of going, you're seven yards on the first run, let's throw it deep and see if we can do something and then maybe run on the third play. But you just had an opportunity. Just keep the sticks moving. Um, and I didn't think they took it. And interestingly, less tight end usage than before, about 20% down on tight end usage. Why? Um, yeah. They can help block. I think what you're saying then is I don't think you have an issue with the game plan as much as the play calling, because obviously the game plan is what's formulated throughout the week. And then that's what goes into the play sheet because right. So you're going to make the same play sheet and then Stefanski is going to sit there and go, all right, I don't have Watson. I'm going to call play X, Y, and Z. But you remember they're designing a game plan versus the Ravens defense specifically. So then they're saying on game day, I just didn't like the plays that were being called. Is that what you're saying? A, a little bit of both, because I think there should have been more max protect and stuff like that. And really the, that first sort of few drives, should have been a lot more run focus, which is part play calling and part game plan because a lot of that early stuff scripted. Um, yeah, I, I think there should have been a much greater focus on the run and also assisting the O-line, which hasn't been great, and the quarterback, regardless of if it was Watson or not. Um, I think they they just didn't do what they'd normally done. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Browns and I think – Stavansky said it himself. If obviously we could go back in hindsight, 2020, we would do things differently. But if you look at it, the first play against the Colts, the Ravens gave up a 30 yard rush to Zach Moss. The first play against the Browns, the Ravens gave up a 26 yard run to Jerome Ford. You know what the difference was? The Colts didn't hold Amari Cooper did right. And it wasn't a needed hold. Ford was already going by. It was inconsequential to the play. The Browns, when they're bad, they're bad in the sense that they beat themselves, right? The Elijah Moore, what the hell are you doing? Like it's the Benny Hill circus around here. Cooper with the stupid grabs. Like it it just was one of those games where when you have a rookie quarterback, everybody's like, well, how did the Gardner Minshew led Colts beat the Ravens? No turnovers. That That's number one right there. And I think they only had 30 yards in penalties. So, and if you looked, a couple of them were like, oh, they took a delay of game to move the ball back in terms of the punt. So some of the penalties were even inconsequential in that sense. So when you're going into a game, and by the way, DTR is a rookie, Gardner Minshew's not, as we've said on this program, Minshew with his mustachio, he should win every game. But that's the idea is, is when you're in these games and you don't have your full arsenal, you need to play perfect, right? You need to be able to execute. And if the Browns continue to beat themselves, whether it's with stupid penalties, whether it's with stupid holds or whatever it is and stupid turnovers. I mean, you talk about that second drive, seven yard run on first down. They took a shot on second and three. And it was a weird kind of thing from DTR. Like for as much football as he's played, like he kind of was falling back. It was super weird. And on third down, what happened was they simply said, we're going to show this defensive coverage. They backed out of it. He didn't see that the, I believe it was the safety drop back, put his hand on the ball interception. Then I ask, why didn't Cooper touch him when he was down? Again, you're talking about plays where on the field, you have to be smarter. The Ravens in the first quarter had 17 total yards and were beating you. That, that's the truth. They were, they beat themselves. 
as much as we want to bitch about the play calling, the runs, the passes, and all this shit, they should have been winning that game at the end of the first quarter. They had two drives that were prolonged. Yeah, I think it's one just put it to bed, light the dumpster fire on and let it burn out. Um, all right, what are we going to go with offense? One. One. Not good, bad, fail. Okay, we didn't get any touchdowns. Is that correct? I think yeah. they only had, what, 100 yards, 100 and something yards total offense? That's worst offense. It was DTR's first game in the NFL. It, so I've, I went through and looked at the last 10 debuts and full starting debuts of day three or UDFA quarterbacks, and it was pretty comfortable. It was the worst out of the 10. Obviously, Ian's made a point of, hey, that against different defenses, which I fully appreciate, but it was really bad. Do you think it was the quarterback or do you think it was um, play calling or the O-line which caused most of the problems? I would put about I... the majority of the blame on the quarterback play. But then I think Stefanski does need to take some of the blame for the play calling in the the part leading up to 14-3. I really don't care after that. Yeah, it was, so was 14-3 at halftime. So you're talking about first half meaningful game, second half meaningless game. I, I would say the minute it goes 14-3, not all the way through to... Was there much after the? No, scored? I think I, the Ravens scored that touchdown pretty late in the second. I think it was like with under a minute left, yeah. Andrews got that touchdown. So it was pretty much 14 3 at half, but that was it. And then when the Browns came out in the third quarter, you thought, all right, here's their one shot. And they had what, two sacks? And it was fourth and 35 or something. It was done. It was done. All right, guys. Anything positive about the offense? No. no. There's got to be something a bit more positive than this, guys. No. It was literally, Paul, I was building a fence. Play, did the guards play well? No. The center didn't, The center got hurt. The guards didn't play well. The offensive tackles were pretty rubbish. The quarterback played like shit. The running back couldn't run. The wide receivers committed stupid penalties and were running backwards farther than they ran forwards. And the tight ends weren't on the damn field. Does that oh, summarize it pretty well? Yeah, it, it was bad. Okay. I don't, I don't even need to look at the PFF grades. I was outside and I'm like, my dad and I are helping building the fence and stuff like that. I got the game on. After the first drive in the third quarter, I turned the volume three clicks and just stopped paying attention. I was like, I'll watch this later because this is trash. Well, I, I hardly call that a real fans. You know, next time put a bit more effort in, yeah? I put as much effort as Watson in getting out there for the game. Um, I actually watched a game at the Hippodrome. Breaking news, Greg Newsom's sister was in the building. Ooh, he had a good game. We get when we get to the defense, oh, we can talk about another show as well for another show, yeah. So yeah. No, we can absolutely talk about the defense because I mean there's obviously a lot more to talk about on the defensive side of the ball. Perfect. Okay, great. So we're gonna give it a one. Yep. Yes. And that's being nice. I want to start on a positive for the defense. Maurice Hurst is planning himself into a really, really nice contract. It will only be a one-year deal, and who knows where it will be. Um, but if he can stay healthy and keep producing at this level to the end of the season, and Ian just pointed me, health is the thing. He's got to just stay healthy. He's probably going to earn, I would say, about $6 million a year next year. Um, one year, $6 mil deal, and someone will pay that because the production has been incredible, really, really good. Um, he's a player I've loved. I think we spoke um, 
around the time when he came out in the draft, Paul, uh, someone we really liked, but there was heart concern that dropped him off many boards. But genuinely, um, really, really chuffed for the guy. Um, it's, a, it's a good news story. Do you think Hurst is going to start getting more of the DT2 snaps than Jordan Elliott? Because if I'm not mistaken, no, based on your one, back. Elliott had 29 snaps. Hurst had 23 snaps last game. Do you so think that's in week three, Elliott's numbers dropped down, but they actually had a revival um, this week. Uh, so this week it was 60%, Tomlinson 50%, um, Elliott 40%, Hurst 38%, um, Harris. But if we look last week, Elliot was down at thirty-three percent. The other two guys around forty and fifty-four. So mm-hmm. it, I, there seems to be no real logic of like they seem to want to keep Tomlinson around sixty percent, and then the other guys forty-five percent Elliot, forty percent for the other two. Um, so I, I think Elliot remains there, and I would rather Hurst is playing a really productive forty percent than we start pushing that number up and then injury or something happens. Yeah, I think overall, you know, because we want to talk about something a little positive before we go into the bye week stuff here. The defensive line is very good at getting pressure with four, you know, and that's kind of what we've talked about. Whether it's Hurst, you know, we won't put Elliott into this category, but between Miles Garrett, Zadarius Smith, you know, Dalvin Tomlinson getting his first sack, I believe. Um, Mo Hurst, like the Browns D line is going to get pressure. In saying that, if the Browns D line is going to get pressure, Juan Thornhill, Grant Delpit, JOK, these guys in the back end have to make the tackles, right? If you're going to get pressure and you're going to get quarterbacks to step up or you're going to get, you know, these the ball out quick, so to say, you got to make the tackle. The one thing that I thought the defense really struggled at the most, Jack, was missed tackles. There was a shit ton of missed tackles. I don't remember what the PFF numbers are, but I remember Delpit at least had two that I can think of. Thornhill had two that I can think of. Uh, JOK had two that I could think of, like top of my head. If you're going to get pressure with four up front, you have to be able to tackle in the back end. They have not had this issue prior to this week with the Jim Schwartz defense. So I'm hoping that this gets rectified because if you don't tackle Christian McCaffrey, if you don't tackle Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle, 49ers in a boat race too. I think a lot of the issues we saw particularly happen in the second half when I think they were well aware going out there that the game was over and you like to think that shouldn't affect the mentality of the tackling and stuff like that. But at the same time, I don't mind because the last thing I want is someone trying to make a hero tackle when the game's already lost and they get injured. So it's one that I, I think they'd seen what the offense was producing and went, nah, we're, we're going to uh, tick it down to 75% here. And I, I, I don't care about that in all honesty. In the second half, it was, it was over already. The, the irony is, is the hero tackles are the ones you miss. Because you're trying to go in and blow a guy up. If you just come in and wrap a guy up and tackle him, like you're talking about, you're actually probably safer that way. Because if you go in trying to lay somebody out, which is what I saw a lot in the second half, a lot of those hero tackles, that's when you miss them. Because if you hit Gus Edwards in the midsection, he can bounce up. But here's the thing. If you want to be the defense that you claim to be, you know, and ultimately going into the game, there was an interesting stat in the first half. I think the Browns were the number one defense in yards per play at like 3.4, and the Ravens were number two at 4.1 which when we get into Stefanski, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But at the end of the day, if you want to hang your hat on that tough defense, it doesn't matter because at 14-3, Jack, 
if you're a defense that believes in that, I'm going to come out, I'm going to make the play, I'm going to get the turnover, right? You take some pride into being able to give your offense that momentum, not mailing in. If you've got three or four guys halfway through the third quarter mailing it in, then that defense ain't what we thought it was. Yep. Guys, what number are we going for? Four, five? I think six is okay. Six? They didn't force any turnovers, right? Yeah, but they were, they were fine. But there was nothing that bad there. If How you many, think uh, that one of them, one of the TDs wasn't on them, it was on the offense. Th- yeah, um, three sa- three sacks, Garrett with one, Tomlinson split one. Uh, five. How they many up- they stopped, though? Uh, what was the Ravens' third down conversion rate? Uh, they were four of 12. But they were one and one, one of one on fourth down efficiencies. Uh, 296 total yards. It wasn't a great game by the Ravens. That first half was pretty tough to watch. Let's be honest. The defense came out with their hair on fire, and it wasn't until that dumb interception that got them that 10-yard field one play, and it was 7-3, right? That's really the only notable play the Ravens had for the first 20 minutes of that game. But they didn't do anything in terms of – I didn't think they lost them the game, but they didn't win them the game. That's why, yeah, I think five. You good with that, Jack? five, Five. Yeah, I'll take five. I wanted six. I just want to note it on the record that if I'm providing the positivity, something's gone really wrong. That is about uh, note that for the record, yes. All right. Um, last thing, special teams. What are you going to go for? And then I'll let you guys crack on with a in-depth conversation about the whole Browns at the moment. But I, I reckon special teams. Actually, I thought it was pretty good. It was the only points you got of the day, right? Hopkins hit his 53-yarder. Borquez had the one that was a damn near 70-yard punt. I mean, I thought in terms of the kicking game between Borquez and the um, the kicker Hopkins, we didn't have any kick returns, right? Because it was a touchback on the one that we had. Uh, Donovan Peoples Jones still looks a bit timid. About yeah, you yeah, but he had a couple where he at least got what, like six, seven, eight yards. I mean, let's see, three care, three returns, twenty-four yards. That's not terrible. You get eight yards on a punt return as an average. That's not too bad. Um, in terms of the coverage, let's see here. Um, they had two kickoffs averaging 22 yards. That's fine. That seems like a win. And uh, punt return, punt coverage was a little lacking. So I would say this would probably be an ideal seven. So, but I'm not giving them an eight. So I would say six. Yeah, I, I would be in a similar space because Hopkins deserves the praise because, hey, anytime you're smashing a 50 plus yard you've overachieved um one note on this i expect uh, whenever he's back of jordan kunisic to replace tony fields on the roster i think the tony fields days are very very numbered in cleveland potentially he gets re-signed to the uh practice squad or they could move um wave kunisic sign him to the practice squad and keep elevating him every week and make diabate inactive but i expect them to sign him and move on from Tony Fields. All right, Paul, before you leave us, the, the audience has a couple questions that were submitted to us. First one, Paul, this is a yes or no. You don't have to get too much into it. Jack and I will talk a little bit about it. Is Kevin Stefanski the long-term answer at head coach for the Cleveland Browns? As I always say with every Cleveland Browns manager, I back the manager until he's left the building. Okay, so your answer is yes. And somebody wanted to know, Paul, you are going to the Indianapolis game, so they'd like to know the game plan co- for Indianapolis. Coach Mike. Yes, Coach Mike. That is right. He would like to know where you're going to go. Are you linking up with any Browns backers? What is currently the plan for Indianapolis? 
Okay, great. I fly in Chicago. I may, Ian may pick me up from the airport if he's working from home. Aye. We may go and get we may go and get one of them Italian beef things in Chicago. Ooh. I may then ask Raquel very nicely, can they drive me to Indiana? <laughs> this is the first breaking news, everyone. I'm hearing about this for the first time. Luckily, my wife has zero interest in listening to this podcast, but I will uh, start having this conversation now. Uh, I do believe some of her friends do listen to the podcast, believe it or not. Yeah, the, most of them, yes. Yeah. So anyway, let's keep this a very PG. And uh, if you've noticed, ever since Raquel's friends have been listening to the podcast, we've not talked about cocaine, hookers, or anything else irrelevant. That is true. Uh, Ian can cut this out later if he wants. Um, no chance. No sustain. This is the gold stuff. Um, but yeah, no, my plan is to get in Chicago and then travel down to Indiana in the Colts, whatever it's called, watch the game there, and then I head 2,200 miles to the West Coast, Seattle. Oh, you're flying from Indy to the West Coast. There is a steak place that everyone keeps sending to me. I've got to go into. It's, it's called Elmo, uh, St. Elmo's. St. Elmo's, yeah. So yeah, they, ha they have a very Elmo. spicy uh, cocktail sauce for their shrimp. Yeah, that's what I want to go to. Love horseradish, I've been told. Yeah, that's what's in the sauce, yes. Yeah. Um, just, Paul, shout out. I'll tell you this before you got to go. So I was at work last week, and I'm at a meeting, and the guy, shout out to you, John. Uh, he's from Wycliffe. So we're in the meeting. He's got a shirt on, and he was like, main shirt. I was like, oh. And I go, what? Did you? he's young. So I'm asking him. I'm like, where are you from? He's like, oh, I went to Miami of Ohio. I said, oh, that's nice. I was like, I actually went to Ohio State, blah, 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 blah. And I go, are you a Browns fan or a Bengals fan? He goes, oh, I'm from Wycliffe. So John from Wycliffe. He goes, I'm from Wycliffe, so I'm a Browns fan. Go, oh, nice. I said, yeah, I grew up there, blah, 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 blah. I go, hey, by any chance, do you know uh, the British Browns fan, Paul Brown? He goes, oh, I love that guy. That guy's amazing. He goes, I follow him on social media and all that other stuff. And I, and I was like, well, just so you know, you are in the presence of the third rung, a.k.a. the lowest of all the lows of co-hosts with Paul Brown. So John says, hello, shout out John from Wycliffe, who I actually ran into in a work meeting. So he sends his best. You are internationally known even here in the Windy City. Perfect. So, all right, Paul, we'll let you scatter on. Jack and I are going to talk about Kevin Stefanski, how to fix the offense. Look, and a few other things. All I'm going to say on this matter is, look, whatever happened, happened with uh, Deshaun Watson, you know, if he didn't feel 100%, no, he didn't feel 100%. Give him a break. They've made a decision. It hasn't gone hasn't gone um, too wrong. You know, he can play against the 49ers. And Jack Duffin did say in his OBR report that he expected DTR to be playing week five. He may get his wish. I'll say this. I think you're right, Paul. We're going to talk about this. I don't have any issue with Watson sitting out. If he can't, there's a difference between hurt and injured, right? If you're injured, you can't play. You got to communicate that. That's the only thing I would say is you got to communicate that and say, Hey, like this, I was going to get Paul. He obviously had to go. So Jack, I'm going to give this question to you, even though it was initiated by Paul. If O Ian Jones and Dewan Jones switch sports, who do you think would have more success and why? So he is pretty multi multi sport talented old um Duan because he played played basketball. So uh, there's some talent there. I think Owen Jones as like the tallest ever five foot seven per man in the world. Um claims to be nearly six foot, but sources called Ian Wright confirm he's actually five seven. 
Um, yeah, he he tries to mask it in centimeters. I'm, we're not that stupid. I, I'm going to go with Dawn Jones just because I think it's easy to put him on a football field and say, you're a centre-back, physically beat people up. Whereas if I put Owen Jones on an NFL field, he would be broken He's in dead. half on the first yeah. snap. Could the he, irony could he is... a kicker? That's the question, though. Well, I... How that's, he, how so that's the legs? only thing. How good would Owen be as a kicker versus how good would Dewan be as a center? Like as a, if you brought him in for like corners and set pieces, where if you have a six foot eight, 375 pound guy, and all you have to teach him is how to head a ball. That's all you got to do. You just have to get his body to direct the ball towards the net. That's all you need to figure out how to do. I think we can make it work. I think we can make it work. I'm not hundred percent sure I've seen, you know, Owen kick a ball, but we got to figure that part out. So he's going to have to, maybe we're gonna have to send the Paul Brown uh, baked bean media up there and maybe get a little tryout video for him. But yeah, at this point I'm leaning to Juan because I do think that Owen would probably trip and fall over the kicking tee or something like that as he was running onto the field. So next. All right, here we go. The Stefanski question. It's all week. You actually said something earlier this week. It kind of started this. I'm not going to blame you, but I can blame you. But it was internally in the chat. It wasn't publicly. Correct. Is Kevin Stefanski the long-term answer for the Cleveland Browns? So it's it's not quite a simple yes-no answer. Um, If we get to the end of this season, and let's just take three weeks of Deshaun Watson. He's about the 16th best quarterback in the league. Um, Is that good enough? No. The question then becomes, if you have not got a realistic change coming at quarterback or anything really on the roster, um, do you think a new head coach, as the only lever you can really pull, is the direction you should go and see what you could get? And hold man's up. It could get a lot worse than Kevin Stefanski. Not quite Freddie Kitchen's level because Depot and Andrew Berry are running the search and not John Dorsey. But it's one that it could get better. I think Kevin Stefanski is just a solid, a good head coach. I think there is still space to get something else. And he's done a really good job with elevating the likes of Kirk Cousins, Jacoby Brissett, Baker Mayfield into being better quarterbacks. But it seems to be very focused on his scheme. I don't think there's been much where he's gone, what do the players do best? I'm going to elevate the players. Because he's still trying to like use Elijah Moore as a gadget player. Um, there's lots of this gimmicky stuff where I think he should just lean into it and go, let's see. And we were promised this other offense. I was expecting to see a lot of shotgun this year. Um, it's a lot more been under center. And if he thinks that's the best way for it to work, fine. But if we get to the end of the season and we're looking at nine wins with how much talent is on this roster, I would be tempted to pull the red lever that says I'm willing to risk it. Can we upgrade? I see your point. And if you want, we can get a little good cop, bad cop here. And I can, you can tell me which side, because I think I can argue honestly for Kevin Stefanski staying. And I think I can argue for him going, but here's my question on that. So obviously we know that Kevin Stefanski is primarily, and I don't want to say solely, but primarily involved in the offensive side of the ball. The defensive side of the ball, he looks for a guy who's going to run their own ship. So Jim Schwartz runs the defense. So when we talk about elevating players on the defensive side of the ball, whether it's Martin Emerson or JOK, 
at the end of the day, I'm not crediting Stefanski for that, right? I'm crediting position coaches, Jason Tarver, you know, defensive line coaches, that kind of stuff. Similarly, on the offense, I'm going to say the head coach's job is to meet with the coordinators, meet with the position coaches and develop and design a game plan, right? So what do I think about Kevin Stefanski's game day management and game preparation management? Because talent development to me falls on a little bit lower of a level. So I think ultimately, as we knew last year, the Browns were very successful scoring on their first drive of the season. It was a very well-scripted play. It was the adjustments, right? How many in-game adjustments does Stefanski make? How many in-game adjustments does he make, whether it's the score related, whether it's injury related? And I think that is right now where everybody has the biggest question. You know, I know we all want to come out and say, well, Stefanski threw the ball 11 times and ran the ball four times. But this is also saying that you, if even if you inverted those numbers, there was going to be a different outcome of success. You know, we've said for the longest time in this, in this Chad and in this podcast that you have to throw to set up the run. Now, if you have a player like Nick Chubb, you can get six yards where normally other people get two or three, which makes your job easier. That's what elite players do. For example, Mike McDaniel in Miami can run a gadget play with Tyree kill the same as Stefanski under Elijah Moore it can be the exact same play. Tyree kill is better than Elijah Moore. Tyreek Hill can make one guy miss and make it a 40 yard touchdown where Elijah Moore gets tripped up by the foot and it's a six yard game. So a lot of times what we're talking about is the players on the roster. And when people see the Browns active cap spend, you know, the highest in the league, they're expecting results. And I wonder too about the shotgun run. I know Jake Burns has really kind of focused a lot of this about how we're going to kind of move the ball. I wonder about the offensive tackles. I would love, and we maybe can get Jake on to talk about this, just systematically when you're running out of shotgun, how much pressure does that put on the edges to hold up? Because any penetration from the edges will blow this, blows the play up because you're already so far deep, right? So I almost wonder if they realize the liability that right now is at left and right tackle. And when we talked about Dewan Jones versus Jack Conklin, this was one of the main things we talked about is the run game. We talked about Conklin's ability to move people in the run game. Not saying Dewan can't, but Dewan's a big man who doesn't have the seasoning that Jack does and not Dolphin. So I like Stefanski's demeanor. I love the presidential kind of way he goes about things. I love the fact that we have an adult in the room, right? I think that a lot of people really bagged on him for this Deshaun Watson situation about saying publicly, oh, well, he was cleared by the team. I think that's because of the league. Bill Belichick and those guys get fined. If you mark a player as questionable, the Ravens are sitting there going, wait a minute, you knew all week he wasn't playing. This is bullshit. They can get fined for that. So I think he had to come out and say he was cleared. This was a player's decision because I think that there's a box to check. You can quote me on that. You can kind of narrow that down. But I, I didn't think like people were saying, oh, he said he didn't do this. Jack, all he did was come out and say, listen, shit didn't work. Whatever we did, it didn't work. It's my fault. He does not scapegoat players. Remember John Har Harbaugh did it last year in Baltimore. Other coaches take that thing and it does not come off well. He's presidential. He's an adult in the room. I like the game plans. I like the script. I just would like to see at this point more adjustments in game. Is there potential then in thinking about this through your what you've gone through to bring in a Jim Schwartz of the offense? And to move Stefanski very much into a CEO-type role that goes, I'm not here to baby these three different positions. 
I'm here to look at it more from a higher level. And he is really good at the fourth down decision stuff. And I don't know whether that's more on him, Depot, but you can have all the best stat people in the world, but there's it's quite often they just get ignored by the people in the power and decision-making position. There could potentially, I think, be a route where they go, actually, we do want Kevin in here. He's a, the, what we need. But they have a chat at the end of the season and go, look, what's happened on the defence was phenomenal. Yes, there was an improvement in some talent because how neat is there is Smith and obviously they've added a couple of actual league average and above defensive tackles. But dramatically, there hasn't been too much of a shift in talent. That has made such an overwhelming impact that I would be up for not getting rid of anyone, but going, let's try and bring somebody in who is going to be a full offensive coordinator and run it all and just allow him to go to that high level. Because then he can be looking at both sides of the ball, making more in-game adjustments and going, hey, Jim, this on the defence, I think we can open something up there. Have you thought about it? And almost just pushing people through the game where he's not having to, he is just not offensive coordinator effectively on game day. And that, and that is naturally there. If you're pl- calling plays, you are, you have to be focused purely on one side of the ball. Do you think the easy change is to start looking to replace the offensive coordinator? Because obviously Alex Van Pelt, because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people forget from a head coach, Alex Van Pelt will have a meeting with all his position coaches, right? They all get the film. They put their thoughts in. Then Van Pelt is going to aggregate that. And then he's going to go to Stefanski. Then Stefanski is going to meet with the whole team and say, all right, what have we seen? They are presenting to him what they think is going to work. That's how they come up with the play sheet. And then on game day, Kevin says, all right, in third and six, to your point about analytics and fourth downs, it's third and six. The Ravens primarily go into nickel. These are our best mid-tier nickel plays. This is the one. And then he's getting insight from the sidelines. Hey, the robber from Baltimore is stepping up when out of that play action. You can hit him over the top. That's how game day works. So it's about his ability to process information on game day and then call plays accordingly. But to your point about the fourth down plays, I have a funny feeling that that analytics team that they are very heavily invested into gives him a packet that says, this is what you do. And he is fully bought in to say, if we are in this and it falls in this area, we're a go. No, there's no discussions. Everybody knows the communication players, coaches, everybody knows if it's this situation, we're going. No. And I think, Simply replacing Alex Van Powell doesn't work unless I think you're giving that person play calling responsibility. Um, because I don't think you get the dramatic impact and benefit that you're seeking to achieve without that. So I think he needs to go out there and one where almost Jim Schwartz, Kevin Stefanski, um, Bubba Ventron, because you want your leaders on the coaching staff as well as your depots, your Andrew Berry, and probably have a really good look at what is the most efficient offenses in the entire NFL? How do we get a piece of that? And I, before today, I felt like you had to change the head coach, but listening to you made a really, really good point in there in your stuff that I think there is a beautiful marriage between this where make him the CEO, bring someone in and let's overhaul that offense next off season um, and go, what does what is going to get the best out of Sean Watson? Because we can burn this all down in two years time and you can overhaul it any time you want. But everything's got to be about how does 2024 Deshaun Watson become a top eight quarterback in the NFL? You can't change him. He's here. Can you elevate? And I I think an offensive overhaul, the same way we saw a defensive overhaul, needs to happen. 
Yeah. So one of the questions we got to talk about was from our boy, uh, Jackson McCurry. What would I do to make the offense more formidable? And I actually had to think about this because at the end of the day, when you look at it on paper, right, you have the Sean Watson, you've got Jerome Ford, you know, so obviously the running backs don't have the skill they do without Nick Chubb. You have Amari Cooper, you have some playmakers on the outside. So why isn't this offense working? And I don't want to say it's too complicated, but I think it's one of those things where the Browns identity on offense needs to be less like Patrick Mahomes and more about maybe more of like a West coast style offense, right? We're getting the ball out quick because these developing plays. And I think Stefanski is very good, just like Mike McDaniel, just like Sean McVay. I think they're very good offensive mind and understanding route concepts, you know, patterns. I mean, how often do we do these play breakdowns after games where you just see this, like almost like this artistic display of receivers, crisscrossing and mesh concepts here and option routes here. And all of a sudden you're like, well, Hey, how did he not see this wide open receiver over here? Right. And I think what's happening is, is the offense is just complicated. Isn't the word I want to use, but it's almost too intricate in the sense of we're trying to get too much out of it. Let's simplify it. Let's integrate more screens. Let's integrate a little bit more of a short, quick passing game. I wouldn't be opposed to maybe coming out, running the scripted offense on the first one, maybe like the first drive of the second quarter, let's go into a hurry up mode, right? Let's try to get moving. Let's get the ball going. Let's have Watson a little bit more outside of structure. Let's get Jordan Aikens more involved. Instead of having Elijah Moore catch the ball five yards behind the line of scrimmage, let's push him to five yards past the line of scrimmage. Instead of trying to move the ball 10, 15, 20 yards at a time, let's dial that back a little bit simplify it in the sense of let's make the reads easier for Deshaun at the beginning of the game, because right now these first, these first halves are just, he's so stuck in the mud, even in the Tennessee game. Like it's just, it's so hard for him to get going. So that's what I'd like to see to make it more formidable. I'd like to kind of dial it back in terms of the offensive structure. I don't mind the 65, 35 run our pass to run ratio. That doesn't bother me. I think you need to throw the ball in this NFL. All the successful teams do it. There's a reason for it. So that's my answer. My answer is let's just focus on moving the ball chain to chain 10 yards at a time, as opposed to those nice, big, deep 20 yard crossers or digs or outs to try to get the chunks. Jack, what say you? Yeah. My mind instantly goes to Drew Brees, New Orleans Saints. Give give me that. And it was, as you said, it was dunk and dive. It was, it was really short, quick stuff. And it just moved down the field and I think you've got enough talent that you can do that on a sustainable basis um so that would be the what I would be looking to achieve in the short term and once confidence builds and the other team starts walking up and thinking hey we need to stop this that's when boom straight over the top and you just get some Marcus Goodwin potentially running just completely uncovered 20 20 plus yards ahead of anyone else great Deshaun Watson knows you can always check that if no one goes with good win or no one goes deep just throw that doesn't have to be super accurate because he's got enough time down there he can change course and clear that and I, I think that's where you almost want to be but I think in the off season it's a massive overhaul look around the teams who's doing the most funky stuff and get a piece of that it could be like there might be a number two that's stuck somewhere in Miami in uh, 
49ers, the Rams, it could be any of these teams. Yeah. And you go, actually, we're going to allow you to come to Cleveland. You're going to run your this offense that you want to run for Deshaun Watson and go and, uh, go and earn a job somewhere else. So, yeah. Um, in saying that, let's we'll shorten up the time frame from next offseason. So the Patriots today went out and replaced Christian Gonzalez, who's going to be out a few weeks, with a cornerback they're familiar with in J.C. Jackson. Signed a couple years ago with, with the Chargers as a free agent. They did a conditional pick swap late in next year's draft for the Patriots to take on J.C. Jackson. One of our questions was, in the running back and offensive tackle rooms, is there anybody realistically that the Browns will be able to go out and get? Obviously, this is right up your alley. It's kind of the bread and butter of what you do at the OT, uh, at the OBR, not the OTR. I was thinking of OTC. The OBR in terms of targets the Browns can add this season for the remaining post-buy schedule that's going to help them reach the playoffs and ultimately win some playoff games. Yeah, so I'll take running back first. There's names out there. You, you've got Fournette, who's a free agent. You've got Cordell Patterson, um, played 2% of snaps, according to Sleeper. It's the first time he was active. Um, and then you've got some some other guys out there. And obviously, they were in on the Acres trade. And considering Acres went for literally nothing, there was just no appetite to bring anyone else in. If they wanted to bring someone else in, they would have done it two weeks ago. They looked around the market and they went, yeah, we'll have Kareem Hunt. They would have looked at every option there. And I don't think we've seen anything in the two weeks since Kareem Hunt came in for them to go, oh, Kareem Hunt actually is washed. We need to spend more than we did back then. If they wanted to bring in Cordero Patterson, they've done it two weeks ago. So I think this running back room is probably what it's going to be. If they bring someone in, it's more likely to be like the Dion Jackson who signed to the practice squad. It's going to be off someone else's practice squad. It's going to be um, one of those sort of real fringe guys. It's full-blown committee. So people getting overhyped, it's not happening. And we're certainly not trading a second-round pick for half a season of Jonathan Taylor. Um, yeah, that's one we can talk about. But what about Michael Carter from the Jets? He was one that was bantied a little bit in the beginning of the season. Obviously, Dalvin Cook, Brees Hall, Aaron Rodgers goes down. Do you think the Jets at all Michael Carter? Is that a name? Does it interest you, A, and is he even obtainable? I, he's obtainable. Um, but if they wanted him, they could have got him two weeks ago. And that's kind of my... If they didn't want him two weeks ago or didn't make a move then why, why why are they likely to make a move now and also are you cutting Pierre Strong um because that's effectively the person you would get rid of because you've got to then use a roster spot for that person so um it's one that I think the running back room is what the running back room is um unless they decide Pierre Strong isn't it and he's had very 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 little time of I'm surprised how little he's been out there yeah, so look, one of the questions we got from Charlie Brown's at Masked Waiter was, do you trust the Ford Hunt strong tandem replacing Chubb? I think your answer to that is no, right, Jack? I, I, I labored this point in the offseason. It was the one position room I felt they didn't do enough. Last season, we had the most expensive backup running back in the NFL, 6.25 million to Kareem Hunt. And then they went from that to, was it eight carries for 12 yards in a fifth round? pick and that was all he got in year one eight carries 12 yards I just I lack the game plan to go from what they had last year to this year if we'd have seen 
a really good season out of um, Ford where he took the, the ball off of Kareem Hunt and we're sat here talking about, hey, he's running for four yards a clip um, and he's doing really well. I'm like, hey, fair, fair enough, let's go for it. Jerome Ford had proved nothing and they were like, yep, we're ready for him. And, and I threw it out there. I, I said to people, are you happy in the first four weeks of the season if Chubb's out for a game? Are you happy to run Jerome Ford? And everyone's like, yeah, of course. The, the Browns front office obviously are. They should have just gone out and spent two mil, signed anyone. Justin Jackson on the vet min could have been an option. I, I think it was negligent in terms of roster building. Yeah, I, I think that that's one where, um, you know, Jason Lloyd talked earlier is we're going to find out how serious they are about the running back room. You know, that's what the question inside the Browns locker room was. If they don't go out, they're telling you right then and there what they think about that running back room. And then the pressure falls more, no pun intended, on the shoulders of, J- of Deshaun Watson. Um, overall, I think that the team is at such a unique place in this because it's so early, right? We've only gone through one quarter point of the season. There's still so many unknowns, right? We got to figure out what the heck's going on with left tackle with Jed Wills. This is a guy where it's like some plays you're like, okay, can we just do that? And then there's some plays you're like, did, did you even know the ball got snapped? Like there's just so much, you know, inconsistency out there at the left tackle that has to drive the absolute coaching staff nuts. And ultimately I think if we go to a little bit more of a short, quicker passing game that could alleviate a little bit of the stress on those tackles, I think that's going to help the offense. And then defensively, I honestly, Jack, I probably wouldn't change anything. Just let them go, go get ball, see ball, get ball. Right. Yeah, the um, defense, you don't want to change anything. Yeah. And the blocking has been shocking, um, to put it that way, because they're all struggling. This is uh, lots of people are pointing the focus on Jedrick Wills, but your white tellers, you, even Joel Batonio doesn't look great. And Joel Batonio has looked great every, all the time, every time. Um, it It's really, really. I'd say concerning. Um, I'm sure they'll get it sorted out. Um, and it's not to say any of those, uh, Joel Batonio hasn't been bad, but Joel Batonio is not playing at his normal all-pro level. Um, hey, White Teller used to be first half of the season, we'd always get all-pro White Teller. They've just been, they're better in pass blocking than they are in run. Run has been really, really grim um, for all of them, Joel Batonio included. Uh, and yeah, it's... It's bizarre. I, I didn't think we'd have the issues that we've got. Obviously, going to Juwan Jones, and that hasn't been as much of a drop-off as I thought it would be. Yeah, it's not the same. But um, I, I expect Wills to get it together. I, I still believe that's the case. He's always going to be inconsistent, but he was inconsistent and league average for the last two years. And people saying, oh, it wasn't good enough, you should have replaced him. In the same vein inconsistent and league average was Grant Delpit the last two years and year, the point. final year it's come together so it's one where people say hey just replace what's inconsistent I'm like yeah fine so we wouldn't have Grant Delpit on the field no 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 Grant Delpit's an exception Grant Delpit and Jedrick Wills very very similar for me the last two years yeah no it's a it's a great point and Ultimately, I think the quarterback can help him out, right? Get the if the ball's out in 2.4 seconds and it's first read, second read, right? You can help that offensive line because pass rushers are a momentum-based thing, right? If all of a sudden this guy's sitting there going, listen, I can beat this guy right off the jump, but it doesn't matter because that ball's coming out, then 
it's demoralizing in that sense for them. So I think a lot of it comes down to getting this off offense, a better, a better rhythm, getting this offense, you know, more early on success. And I think ultimately you're going to start seeing an uptick in play. Cause right now I just think there's a lot of confusion up front, what's going on behind them. And it's showing that's really what it's, what's happening. Maybe the running backs are missing the holes. That's why the, we, we don't really know because to be fair, you have to be pretty much plugged into like the specific style of offense being run to know what the read is. But listen, they've got a week to figure it out. I, I like the people in the room to make the decisions in terms of, you know, adjustments and stuff like that. So they're going to have to get it together because right out of the bye week, you got San Francisco. And there was the other question on left tackle options. I think Jed Wills is your best bet currently at left tackle. Um, they would have probably looked at what was on the market and then N- Nishiki. I don't know how his name's pronounced. The uh, I think it's Ty Nishiki. Nishiki, um, who they signed to the practice squad. I think they looked at it and said, that's, that's the best that's really available. We'll go with him. Um, so I, I think that's where they are. Um, I Still at the moment, I do have Jed Wills penciled in as you're starting left tackle next season. Um, I think it's one that they'll probably draft somebody. But that's the aspect to develop. Same way Duan Jones was drafted to develop and start in years ahead. He might then end up winning the spot, but that's one that he's really going to have to earn it. And I do expect this to revert to the mean. If we're just looking at Joel Batonio's pressure numbers, before this season, so we're looking over 2014 through to 2022, do you want to guess what the most amount of pressures he's allowed in a season? In a season? Yeah. 10. 10. No, so all but one season's over 10 for the entire year. You've got 2015, which was his second season, was 19. And then the last four years... Okay, you're saying pressures. I'm sorry. For some reason, I was thinking of sacks. All right, I get you saying. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking like he's never allowed more than 10. Yeah, so we're just talking pressures here. Last four seasons have all been 13. And then 12 before that, 11. Um, Do you know what he's at now through four games? Nine. Eight. Eight. Yeah. So, yeah, it's he, he, he's not looking himself. Um, and that could be the factor that he feels uncomfortable next to Jed Wills. Who knows? But to be fair, he's been next to Jed Wills last um, few years, and that hasn't impacted him. So it's one that it – oh, no, sorry. I was looking at hurries and not pressures. Um, I apologise for that. If we're looking at pressures – 26 is the most he had in that second season. He's had 24 and he's had um, 20 uh, last season. So, how many sacks though? I mean, because I feel like there's a pressure in 2017, and that's the only time he's gone over three. There was a three in 2019. It's been one or two basically every single year. Yeah. And how many is he at this year? Zero still. He hasn't allowed a hit or a pressure. Uh, Sorry, he hasn't allowed a hit or a sack. sack. It's only hurries he's allowed. Um, but it's one that... And that's that's communication. I mean, that's communication with the guy next to you. Well, when Joel Batonio is not looking great, you know the problems are probably bigger than just Jed Wills. Yeah. Um, and I think Jed Wills is made to be a scapegoat at times. Um, he's not played well, great, but he hasn't been the worst listen, player Jack, on the field. Jack, what did we say on Monday night? Right, I, You probably didn't watch the game, but did you see the Seattle defense? Did you see what they did to the backup left tackle for the Giants? None of it. 
Seattle, I think, had 10 sacks. The Giants left tackle was getting Daniel Jones crushed all day. I mean, we're talking running right around them, right? It, it, the offensive tackle play in the NFL is getting harder and harder because the guys on the edges are getting better and better, right? So it's rare that you find a Trent Williams or, you know, in this case, the right tackle, Penny Sewell. These guys, there's a reason they get paid Boku dollars because this is an NFL game right now where those speed rushers off the edge are dangerous. I mean, Khalil Mack had six sacks, I think, in one game against the the Raiders on Sunday. I mean, these guys are bringing pressure. The quarterbacks are going to have to be smarter. It was impossible to sack Peyton Manning for the most part because that ball was out before you even knew what was going on. They yeah. got to look to that. And time to throw is actually, is that a fairly decent amount of time to show? It's like, yeah, it's like 3.06 seconds or something. Like that, yeah, so. Fourth yeah, and, in and, the league. So. Yeah, so there you go. Get rid of the ball. Listen, Harrison Bryant, I get it. You got to figure those out because what happened with the Steelers on those short, quick passes, you got to get on the same page. It, it's it's clear to everyone. The offense isn't in sync. The defense, good, check. We're spending all this time on the offense because that's where it makes a difference. You got to get this thing in sync. And I know people want to scapegoat Stefanski right now, but I think ultimately it's AVP, it's those other guys. They got to hit the room and they got to figure out what's working and what's not working. And Watson's got to get right. Because at this point, what you're paying for, you're not getting that return. Yep. And, hey, it, it it's not all doom and gloom. He's still league average through three games. And if he can just continue producing, even do what he just did against the Titans for the rest of the season, we're easily making the playoffs. I'd say we easily win the division. If he just performs Titans level, which was nothing super special, it was just above average. If he does that for the rest of the season, we win the division. So... It's not that doom and gloomy. Um, let's get drunk and have fun on a bye week. One thing to keep in mind, I do have an article coming out on Monday on the OBR. 2024 roster prediction. Whoop, whoop. Oh, boy. And our final question that was submitted from S. Glassbrenner 05. I heard he's a real piece of work. What was your thought process behind thinking Elijah Moore was the player to watch last week? Where did you learn to evaluate talent or lack thereof so well? To answer the question, Elijah Moore matched up against their cornerbacks and linebackers should have been a advantage Browns. However, because he decided to run 20 yards in the opposite direction, he screwed all that up. So it's not my picture perfect or elite level abilities to scout talent because Elijah Moore could be a good player if he's running the right way, not if he's running the wrong way. I say that. And that's the end of that. I've also known him since I was nine. He's still mad because my team beat his team in the Lorraine Youth Baseball Championship. Uh, he was with the firefighters and I was with Horizon Dental. Shout out to my boys at Horizon Dental for beating Seth's ass in the championship. I still have the trophy to prove it. He's never forgiven me for it. What can I say? Now he's picking on my Elijah Moore talent evaluations. Sorry, not sorry, Mr. Seth. <laughs> well, as always, go Browns. Go Browns.